Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest the author of Game of Sales, Lessons Learned, Working at Adobe, Amazon, Google. David Perry is a sales leader, author, investor, and advisor. He's worked at the sharp end in enterprise technology sales. Dave, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Excellent. So, Dave, tell me, um, a lot of people don't really understand the difference between enterprise sales and direct and product sales. What What is it that makes enterprise sales so awesome? Right. Well, the thing I love about enterprise sales is that you're solving big problems for, for your customers. And so it's not only about uh, a single point solution, something where you're trying to solve a very like specific niche. It's solving something that's holistic. And that can be anything from uh, you know, what I focus on these days, which is helping to change the way large enterprises create digital experiences to their, the, their overarching like backend systems and how everything connects into everything else. And so these, as you can, as you can hear, involve many different teams internally, many different technologies, uh, many different processes. And so that is uh, what I think is at the core of the difference between when someone says enterprise sales versus, let's say, you know, a point solution. So it strikes me that an enterprise salesperson really is the conductor of an orchestra. And you have all these different moving parts, all these different musicians playing. And if you don't coordinate them, then they make a horrific cacophony, which can be very expensive. And if you mess up, the consequences for the buyer are also extreme. So in terms of the qualities that make a great enterprise salesperson, if you were to distill those down into their attitudes, beliefs, and values, their habits, their ability to bounce back and to adapt, what would those look like? I mean, I think it's a great question. That's, that's the subject matter of my entire book, actually. When I think about you know, what is the mindset that an enterprise salesperson needs to have, there are a whole set of characteristics that are, that are required, and they're required at different points in time. So you started off the call saying, you know, what, what makes enterprise sales awesome? I think that's one of the first things that you have to be really excited about what you're doing and it has to really resonate with you. Because if, if it doesn't, then, you know, it's, it, you're, you're not really going to want to stick with it for very long. And so there are certain things about enterprise sales that, that I love, like working with incredible business leaders. I mean, the people that I work with on uh, a daily basis that my customers, they are really on the vanguard of, of their industry. So that's, that's really exciting. Also, being involved with cutting-edge technology, helping to change these companies to solve big problems. Then there are many other elements or, or aspects of the uh, of the mindset that I, that I can get into. Um, I think one of them just just comes with being focused on trying to consult your customers, having a consultative mindset, having a desire and a need to stay at the forefront of the industry and also of technology and I think more and more today, we're seeing that those things are, are becoming the same. And so if you can do that, then you have instant credibility with any executives you're talking to. When I talk to the, the, the other you know, top salespeople at Adobe that I work with, these are people that are just really just at the, 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 the top of their field. And this might sound cheesy, but 
caring is absolutely critical. Not at all, Susie. Yeah. I think if you don't care, particularly when you're dealing with these sorts of numbers, this level of complexity, these kind of challenges, and the pressure that surrounds an enterprise sale, then you're going to get found out incredibly quickly. Because if you don't have your customer's best interests at heart, if you don't have your partner's best interests at heart, if you're not taking care of the people who have to put in discretionary effort within your own organization, then you're just going to be thrown to the wolves, and justifiably so. You come last in that hierarchy. And the the problem there is that I think a lot of people aspire to move into enterprise sales, but they're way too transactional. And so they're always in a rush. They can't wait to pitch. And I've interviewed CFOs about their experience and CEOs about their experience of having salespeople turn up. And without exception, they want salespeople to be their partner. They want them to be their ally. They look forward to them because they help them put out these massive fires. But by and large, they're deeply, deeply disappointed in these flawed salespeople who are selfishly self-interested in and, and have their quota and their target front of mind instead of the customer's outcomes. And they, they focus on product. I mean, who gives a damn about the product? No one cares. No one's ever woken up and said, you know what I really want? I want to put all of my stuff onto the cloud. No one's woken up and said, I want a mainframe. It just doesn't happen. So why is it no, that still so many salespeople do that? I think there's a lot of pressures, as you mentioned, to sometimes there can be tremendous internal pressures to just sell at all costs or to, to pitch, like you're saying. Or you can face a difficult customer situation where it's easy to walk away or it's easy to just have something, for example, let's say an implementation goes awry. It's easy to just forget about it, let the customer deal with it. But if you care deeply, the customer can sense that and they know that at the, t- at the table, like for example, when you're meeting with that CEO, like they can sense that. If you're a person that is going to stick with them after the sale and do everything you can during the sales process to make sure that the eventual implementation works and that you can also be uh, consultative and, uh, and care about their outcomes. And I think that really comes down to having not only caring, but also having a long-term view. The transactional mindset is very dangerous on both sides. It creates a lot of issues. So you get situations and, and you get bad acting where, okay, well, if I'm only going to meet this, with, with this person once, have one transaction with them, then it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, we're going head to head. That's not where you want to be. You want to be thinking about each other in the context of a, of a marriage, right? So you're going to have a much more fruitful and beneficial relationship with them. And the, the, whole pro, the whole process around getting the deal done, negotiation, all that, all that becomes you know, much more transparent and much easier because if you don't build that trust, the negotiation will be brutal and both sides will lose big time. So um, it's really important to have that, that caring mindset to, to build that credibility uh, with executives as well. And so they can feel it. And it's something that I think has been characteristic of the way that I've gone about things. And I wasn't really aware that, that was such an important component until I, until I started working on the book and I started talking to other salespeople about what makes them, what makes them tick. 
So what's the internal conversation that the salesperson must have with leadership and management before embarking on a pursuit in order to ensure that they don't come and ruin things by putting pressure on the wrong places? Because God knows I've seen that happen. So if you're talking from a management perspective, are you talking about the intern, are you talking about the salesperson or the uh, Yeah, the, the, the salesperson internally within the vendor organization with management and leadership. Right. Right. Okay. I think the way the way that can be done is by taking a you know as I mentioned a consultative approach, understanding what the the customer needs. There are a whole variety of frameworks that that I come to leverage over the course of my career. One of my favorites is the the value selling framework. So this is something that's used very widely within the industry. And so what you do is you you have a series of questions that you open to diagnose the problem, to understand what the solution might look like, what the value of that solution might be, who's involved in making that, that decision, and then also what the plan looks like in order to get that solution implemented. And so that sounds you know, very simple on the surface, and it is actually in, in a lot of ways, but it, going through that process will have an amazing impact. And what I just described to you, that's called that's value selling, but it's an abstraction of what sales is. So if you know, if you were to, you know, if you never heard of value selling and you know you did sales for 30 years and you were to come up with some framework, it would look a lot like that, right? And there are many different sales frameworks. But having that that um that conscientious pro, uh, process of really digging in, understanding what the customer's problem is, um, and confirming it and checking with different sources. And just doing that on an iterative basis to get your solution, that is going to make sure that you're applying pressure in the right way, where you're applying pressure to get to a solution rather than to force a customer to sign, right? So that's the, the right type of pressure that, that you want to create. So it's, you're creating pressure with your organization to bring certain resources to the table or to bring in another partner into the mix. You can round out whatever it is you're trying to put together for the customer. So you've touched on planning because uh, if you're going to marshal campaign like an enterprise sale, again, for anyone who's listening, understand that the first transaction is just that. It's the first transaction. The lifetime value of an enterprise customer is dependent on your ability to leverage the ecosystem in which they operate. So that involves organic growth. It involves looking at their supply chain, their joint ventures, their partnerships. It looks at their alumni. It looks at sister companies, parent companies, and the customer's customer. That's the opportunity that an enterprise uh, op- uh, an enterprise customer offers if you choose to do it well. But most people are so fixated just on the organic growth that they miss all the other opportunities. So they have a tendency to spread themselves very wide. So let's start with, uh, when we talk about planning, let's start talking about market and territory planning. How do you go about doing that? I'm glad you asked. So that is a critical part of, again, the the enterprise mindset. And I have uh, 12 different categories that I've carved it into in my book. But, you know, I consider that as part of what it takes to build an automatic pipeline. And that is being able to build business repeatedly. And when I get my, my territory, and this is true of 
other other um, enterprise salespeople who who have been doing it and are are perennially among the top in their in their field. When they get their territory, it feels like they're ready to just launch forward, and they know exactly what they're going to do. And that starts with the ter- with the territory plan, right? And so it depends on how large your territory is. If you have maybe you have two hundred customers, right? And oh, sorry, are we talking about customers, oh, yeah. or prospects. I'm sorry, prospects, prospects. Thank you, right. thank you, thank you for that clarification. Yeah. So maybe you have two hundred prospects that you've just been handed. Or maybe you have five, right? Or maybe you have one. It can be, you know, it can really uh, run the gamut in, in enterprise sales. And I, I've had, I, that's actually in my case, right? I've had, sometimes I've had 200, sometimes I've had one. But the, the point is, is that you have to take a day or two at least where you shut everything else out and you're focused on that territory to come up with some notion of prioritization. Now, whether it's one or 200, you're looking for the same thing. What are the one or two things that may exist that you know will absolutely prevent a deal from getting done? This can be anything like there's a, a certain systems integrator in there that for whatever reason, they will just never allow your particular company in, or they favor the competition. Or maybe there's some type of government regulation in place. It could be that there's another uh, solution in place that's just not, there's literally no chance you have of getting in that year because that uh, renewal doesn't come up until, let's say, the following year. And there's just no way that the company's going to break that contract, right? So that's one thing you want to screen for. And the other th- set of things is what makes a good prospect, right? Like, you know, is it, maybe they have some type of complementary software installed. Maybe there's some type of, of change happening within the organization. And so you need to screen your customer or your list of customers for that. And if you have 200, you have to go one by one by one and you sort them and you'll see that there's going to be a band at the top where you can focus your energy. But if you just go at it and don't have any sense of prioritization, I guarantee you will not be nearly as successful and you will not be able to be in the top of your company in terms of you know, hitting your numbers. It just won't be possible. The lesson there is what you say no to matters more than what you say yes to. If you have not done your planning and you haven't prioritized, you'll spread yourself way too thin. And these kind of pursuits, we're currently working on five opportunities at enterprise level within uh, one of my clients, their password-free enterprise uh, security solution. And we've got 54 concurrent dialogues going. You cannot manage that in 200 accounts. 54 is practically stretching us to breaking point. It's manageable, but you have to be incredibly well organized and you have to choreograph everything. You've got to make sure that at the beginning and end of every conversation, you know why you're there, why you're turning up, what both sides want to have happen by the end. At the end, you agree, have we achieved those? What are the next steps? Who does what by when? How do we escalate? So you've got to treat this with the respect and seriousness that it deserves because the cost of pursuit is astronomical. If you touch one of these pursuits, you're probably burying 40, maybe $100,000 of your company's time, money, resource in that pursuit. And that's only if you get to the first or second stage. 
And by the time you've uh, choreographed everything and you've got your internal people, your pre-sales people, your management, your finance, your marketing, your operations, you've got legal involved, you you could easily be uh, looking at 250 to a million in one of these pursuits. You have an absolute responsibility to be ruthless in saying no to anything that takes you away from those priority activities. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Especially if you, uh, you know, once you get into that, into the game where you have a real team that you're leading, that part, that sense of prioritization becomes even more important because you're multiplying by every per, every body you add is dollars that you need to be responsible for and be the steward of for your company. That's yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And so let's talk about the other ends. We talked about the 200, right? But if we're talking about, let's say, the one to five range, you mentioned an account plan. There's a lot of research that you can do before you ever set foot into the, the customer's domain that will allow you to make the most of every interaction. And so it's a very different mindset, I think, than you know if you're working one to five and the 200, right? And it's, it really is about you know, how many streams, like, you, like you're saying, so you mentioned you know, 50 conversations across five customers, right? Um, how many streams can you run in parallel that are going to be productive and directed towards the right people at the customer across the entire decision-making chain? And that's, that's easier said than done. What I find that works really well is focusing on try, trying to help the customer get value out of what they... Now, this is a customer that... So in the enterprise technology context, you're not always selling new logos, right? Much of the time, there's some piece part of your technology that's installed and you're trying to help them get more value out of that and then to grow to the rest of, of the portfolio that you sell, right? And so the critical thing is making sure you understand what is the use case or how are they implementing what they currently own and can you fix any problems? Can you drive further adoption and broader adoption of the organization? And in the course of that, you start to build relationships across and and can build up to more senior levels. And what I found, and this is almost always true, but if you have a, a single relationship, even if it's not that strategic, if it's failing within a company and you're meeting with the CEO of that company, the first thing they're going to do is, or maybe not, they might not go directly to that whoever that day-to-day person is that's working on that technology, but they're going to ask their next person in line and, and, and so forth. How is it going with uh, company X or how's it going with, you know, how's it going with your company? And if they hear it's not thumbs up, that conversation is going to be over. So it's important that you um, are able to marshal up and down the line and really get that, whatever's installed functioning really well. So you can then build, those higher um, level conversations. Well, uh, to to build on that, what we saw prior to COVID was that on average in companies of over a thousand employees, there were six to seven decision makers involved. Post COVID, we're now seeing up to 11 in the buying committee. Now, if you're trying to marshal all those conversations in parallel, you better make sure that you're listening to what those people are saying and you cannot afford to be afraid of having difficult conversations. Many people in sales are afraid of all conflict. Actually, conflict, if it's constructive and it's critical, is exceptionally valuable. And in my experience, the best enterprise salespeople 
get ahead of those conflicts. They raise the objections. They deal with and neutralize those problems. They don't brush them under the carpet. They don't hide from them. So again, when you're marshal- when you're putting your plan together, it's important to understand who the cast of characters is, where the power and authority lies, who the sub-decision makers are, influencers, recommenders, specifiers, technical buyers, user buyers, financial buyers. You need to know who has high, medium, and low influence. You need to understand who's a friend uh, or a foe, who's in, uh, neutral or unknown, because to a large extent, um, it's not only, it certainly isn't about uh, the product. It's about making sure that all these different components are taken care of, all the different needs are being addressed. And if you don't have those conversations going on and you're not addressing the difficult conversations, you're not understanding who is vying for the same budget that you might be striving for, then chances are you're going to come unstuck. So Again, what advice would you give to people when they are moving into an enterprise world, maybe for the first time, in terms of understanding the mechanics and the cast of characters? What advice would you give to them? So what you're describing, you know, I, I, I call tough conversations. And I had an incredibly strong conviction when I set out to write the book that this is something that, like, as you're saying, it, I think it defines the people. It's one, of the, it's one of those characteristics that defines people who are successful versus those that aren't. And so I was asking myself, I was like, well, why? And this was by far the hardest chapter to write. I must have had 30 revisions. I mean, this was, this was a chapter that almost killed me <laughs> because there's just so many different angles that you can come at it. And like, how do you possibly diagnose this thing? And so I came, I came up with, a, you know, when you go through it now, I mean, it looks pretty simple. But so I think it really comes down to two problems that you need to solve if you're, let's say, coming up. Or I'm definitely guilty of this even now, even though I know the right way. Sometimes I shy away the conflict and it's just, you know, just got to get myself back into it. But, you know, the point is, is that so I think there's really two problems. The first problem is maybe someone's afraid. Maybe I'm afraid, maybe you're afraid to upset the customer or to lose the deal or to whatever that fear might be, or you don't want to you know, upset somebody. So I, I have, I have a, a, a very simple methodology to, to get over that fear. And it's just taking, doing something outside. Like this is a perfect example for me. I mean, this is, I haven't been you know, doing a podcast way outside my comfort zone, but doing yeah. something every day that is, you know, something that makes you a little uncomfortable. So you, you build up the, you know, that muscle memory and the calluses. And so when you get into those really difficult situations, they just kind of roll off your back and you're able to handle them. But fear is a big, big problem. And I've seen it push away very talented people from the finish line. The second thing is maybe they don't know when to have the tough conversation. So I provided a framework to actually help them identify. And I think there's really two types of tough conversations you need to have in the in any sales cycle. And so you mentioned objections, right? Like one of them is the something that's really like rapid fire that you need to take care of in the moment or anticipate, you know, anything that can go awry with the sales cycle. So an objection might be, oh, this is going to take us a year to implement. And if you know that is going to be a sticking point for your customer, you need to head that off right right away. 
and don't wait to be very proactive about it. Or it could be something like, you know, maybe, maybe you're in the process of closing the deal. Something's going wrong with legal or whatever it is. You have those tough conversations. I call them like, you know, really urgent and important things. And sometimes they're not, they're not as easy to see coming, but once they hit, you know, and you've got to act right away. Cause if you wait a week, two weeks, three weeks to resolve that thing, you could waste a lot of people's time and money and you'll probably lose the deal. The second one, and this is much more difficult, I think, to see, and it's the, or not, not see, but to, uh, to get around, and it's the notion of complacency or inertia, where the customer might not even know that a problem exists. How do you have that conversation? You can't just walk up there and be like, oh, hello, I know you've been doing this for 30 years, but you have a big problem and you're just not seeing it, and I know, and you don't. Like, you can't, that's, that's, not, how that, that's not how that goes, right? That's much more of like a delicate, educational approach where you're showing an industry perspective. And there's actually a great book on out there that describes this specific problem. It does it really well. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the challenge or sale. Yep. Right. So that's by, by Matt Dixon. He talks about different types of, of uh, salespeople, but that book is great at diagnosing the specific problem of getting around inertia through many different examples and educating by educating the customer. I mean, I give a few examples in my book, but it's really a simple story of, Look at a successful customer that, that you had or your company has had and talk about the journey that they went through to help illuminate the problem that this new customer has that they might not see or might not be prioritizing. That's one of the ways that I describe that you can get around this. But it's, um, yes, the, the, this is a, a big differentiator for enterprise sales. Yeah. yeah. Can I just make one point here? You've got to be yeah. very and very careful when you're uh, using the challenge of sale. There are an awful lot of people out there who just come across as being a total ass when they used it because uh, you, you've got to have done your research. You need to understand the outcomes that the customer is trying to achieve and you have to frame it in their world. You've got to make sure that you're there to serve. Don't try and be a smart ass by turning up and saying you're wrong because I've seen that happen far exactly. too often as well. When you're in an enterprise account, you could be in there for 10, 15, 20 years, your entire career. And all you've got to do is come across as being self-serving or arrogant, and you're out of that account for life. So just be really careful. Do your preparation. So that then brings me to the next major bugbear with enterprise sales, which is the planning the preparation, the rehearsal, the simulations and role plays, the red team, white team meetings, the strategizing, all that hard graft that transactional salespeople don't like to do. So let's spend a bit of time talking about that then, Dave. I have to echo what you said about, about the challenger sale. And I think just the, uh, and I do talk about this in the book, but the notion of, you know, when you hear the word challenger, it's not really about you know, being aggressive, like, like you're saying, I mean, it, it's more about education at deep, trying to educate and challenging the mindset of your customer by helping them to see a, a new dimension of what they're doing or a new, new problem. But yes, to, to your point or to your point around being within an organization and for 30 years, and how do you then prepare for these conversations with your team? So maybe you're meeting with the CEO. And you've had this relationship for, let's say, five years. Maybe it's uh, the 10th time. Maybe it's the first time you're meeting with the CEO. The, the amount of orchestration 
and preparation that goes into that can be really immense. And so I think there's many different levels of it. And I think where we all would like to be in that, you know, where we can just call up and say, you know, it's kind of like the conversation we're having now, like we've kind of done the, the prep and we're in the flow, but that's not how it really works, you know, all the time, right? So oftentimes you need to get together with your team for one, two, three, maybe even four preparatory sessions where everybody understands their role. Everybody's bringing new research or iterating on a point of view or a presentation that you're going to bring to the customer to help to enlighten them or show them some type of new use case or whatever it is that your technology is doing, some type of benefit that you can offer that they might not have been aware of. Or maybe you're, you're solving a problem, you're fixing an issue. And so you pull, you're digging deep within your, your organization and bringing in many different people to help to diagnose that problem. And out of either of those, you can create trust, faith, and new opportunity. Because if you're solving a problem, even if it's one that the customer perceives that you might have created, you fixed it, and that gives them confidence. It gives them confidence in your company and your ability to help move forward. Likewise, if you're trying to show them, illuminate a new area, it's the same thing. It's just you're, you're building the confidence and trust in, the, what, in what you're doing to helping them achieve their goals. So I'd like to really build on this preparation piece because in my experience, it's glossed over and people are in a rush and you've got management telling you, you know, because it's in the forecast and, um, you know, things slip and whatever. When we're preparing for these, for each engagement, each touch, we need to have practiced intentionally with the deliberate intent of improving our performance. And my view is for every minute you're in front of the prospect or the customer, you need to spend at least three minutes in rehearsal. And a lot of salespeople say, oh, I don't have time for all of that. Think about the cost of not preparing. On average, one in eight first meetings result in a second meeting. Now, that means you're wasting seven out of eight. Let's pretend half of those four were never going to buy. That's still three opportunities that were perfectly viable that you could have advanced, but you didn't through lack of preparation. Now, think what's happened to get you to that first meeting. On average, it takes 33 dial attempts to get one effective conversation based on the findings of Connect and Sell, who do 40 million cold calls a year, and they've analyzed their data. So on average, it's 33 dial attempts to get one effective, except if you're dealing with senior technology executives, in which case it's one in 46. Now, on average, a rep will typically make about 15 manual dials an hour. So it takes roughly three hours to get one senior executive conversation of three hours of effort, which is very frustrating and also very expensive because an enterprise salesperson, what kind of quota did you carry? I can't say that, but it's, it's large, that's for sure. So in broad terms, was it above 10 million? Below. Below, right, okay. So for every million, it costs about four grand a day, roughly. So in effect... Every call has so far cost the company about $1,500 to get one effective conversation. On average, I think it's a roughly about one in 14 of those effective conversations result in being invited in for a meeting. 
So you multiply that uh, 1,500 by 14. Now you're up into the $15,000 mark just to secure a meeting on top of the marketing costs that's gone before. Then bring along a pre-sales person because quite often salespeople use a crutch of having a technical expert along with them. So you can now double whatever that day rate is. And each meeting costs the company another couple of grand. And you've just blown the best part $20,000 because you didn't do the preparation. Now tell me that you don't have the time to prepare and to plan. So that's the first point I want to... Now, the second... uh, My my question following on from that is I I have a view that the salesperson is the captain of the ship. And everybody from the chief executive to the pre-sales person to legal marketing are crew. So how do you manage expectations upwards when you're bringing in one of your big guns. So you have peer-to-peer conversations, CEO to CEO, CFO to CFO, legal to legal. How do you make sure that they understand their role is crew, not captain? Right. That's so important. I think the, uh, the team that you surround yourself with, and sometimes you may or may not get to pick those team members, but the, the way that you work with them is absolutely critical. Being able to bring in executives at the right time is also important. So there's really two things that I think that, you know, I, I focus on. One is I want to make sure I understand how that individual executive likes to contribute. There are some executives that thrive and, you know, they want to be thrown in the fire. There are some executives that want to talk, you know, general about industry trends. There are, there are some that... Um, maybe they want to focus on a specific technology or a specific problem. So you need to know that. And if you don't know that before bringing in the executive, you have to find out. Either you need to ask them directly or you need to ask someone that's worked with them. Because the worst thing you can do is put an executive in a position that they do not want to be in or that they feel that it's a waste of their time or that they, you know, they, can't, they feel useless. So that's the, the, one of the most important things. The second thing is, is that you have to prepare some type of document for them and you need to have a pre-meeting with them. So the document helps them to see like, these are the details of the account. Here's what's installed. Here's the amount. Here are our different, the initiatives that we're working on. And here's the background of the individuals that are going to be in the room from the customer, the you know, customer executives. And once you have that all laid out and, they, and they've read that, you know, it might take them, you know, a lot of these uh, senior executives, I have a feeling that their reading speed is like probably 10 times the average person, right? So they can see this document, you know, read it in probably about three minutes. Maybe it took you like three hours to put together, but then all of a sudden they're primed. And then what you do is you say, okay, here's the risk that you need to be aware of when you're walking into this room. And maybe that risk is they had a bad experience with implementing X or where they perceive us as too costly in this area or this person has a problem with this specific partner. Whatever that risk is, you need to let them know. Then you need to let them know what is the outcome you're looking to drive for. So from this meeting, we expect to have in, in you know, well, it used to be, I would say, some type of like onsite, but that's not the case anymore. But you know, we, we expect to have uh, a follow-up where we put a mutual plan together with that executive's direct reports to get this, uh, you know, to get this uh, sale done. And then you also want to make an ask of that executive. Maybe you're bringing this executive in because there's some some part of your organization that's stuck. 
Maybe it's a legal problem. Maybe it's a technical problem. Maybe you need to make a promise to put a feature in the roadmap. And so that's your ask of that executive. So if you do those things, I think you're going to be in really good shape if you're working with, um, you're bringing a senior executive from your company to then meet with a senior exec at another company. So I call that, you know, say executive bridging, or I mean, there's, there's lots of different terms for it, but that's how that can be done successfully. I'm sure you're far too diplomatic to say yes to this question, but have you ever had to pull a senior executive out of the loop because you couldn't depend on them to do what's necessary? Fortunately, I've never been in that situation. I think it comes back to that first thing I said, right? Is which is making sure you know how that individual wants to contribute. I might have been in that situation if I was pulling the executive in in the the wrong context, right? But that's one of the amazing things about working at the companies that I've worked at. There are endless numbers of incredibly talented executives. And so I, I you know, especially for for someone like me, if what you said happens, that means that that you know you're just not you're not looking in the right in the right way, but you know, maybe at a smaller company that could that could be a challenging thing, right? You know, that, that could happen. Something that's really important, though, uh, when you are taking someone else in, where you are captain, is you need to agree the ground rules. When you intervene with a predetermined code phrase or behavior, then at that point, even if they are mid-word, they stop because you you you've got the big picture. And uh, you're the one with the insight, you've got the relationship, everything that has happened so far should have been because you've choreographed it. So they need to respect that position. You have to earn that respect because what we're talking about here is not only valuable for your company, but will directly impact hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of employees of the new customer. And their customers, your customers' customer as well. So these decisions are momentous, and it's really important that people understand with absolute clarity what the ground rules are for engagement. And th- this then brings me to another aspect of enterprise selling, because I think what I've I've seen it happen quite often, and less so with more forward-thinking organizations, but. Salespeople who move into an enterprise role often think they've arrived and they are the finished article. So let me ask you, uh, Dave, in, in terms of how much time and attention and effort you personally put in to continuous development, I'm really curious to find out about that and what the difference is between those who are the top 1% performers and the rest. I think that's a great question. And, and so you mentioned being a finished article. And <laughs> even though I made, let's say, Platinum Club last year and I, I released a book on sales, like I don't feel like I'm anywhere near a finished article. And it was actually very humbling going through the process of writing the book because I realized like, you know, each, every facet element here is so deep. It's like you could spend almost like a, an entire book or lifetime trying to, you know, sharpen each one of these skills. So it just got, the depth of the field and everything that needs to be done is just, it's almost insurmountable. So I, I, you know, I think the first thing is that I I think that, you know, you're never done and you're always trying to improve and and gain more efficiency and learn. So how much time do I spend on that? I mean, I don't know like exactly how to answer that, but I can tell you that just the process of writing the book, I mean, 
how long did that take? Right. I mean, that was part of my you know, development process. And I've noticed without exception, the salespeople that are at the top, you know, when they get a training, they do the training and they're positive about it. Right. They're not putting it off to the side or they're reading a book about sales or, or the industry or they're they're constantly reading about the industry, you know, different technologies. And they're, they just have a commitment to learning continuously. So it's just part of the job, part of the role. And I don't think you like the second you think you're a finished article, you're probably fired in three months. That's how I, it, I think about it. I don't, I don't know about you, but writing my book, I realized just how much more I had to learn. And I realized that it was just the tip of the iceberg. Because when, when I wrote the book on channels, I realized how much I knew, but I also recognized that in order to elevate to the next level, uh, there was so much more work. And that then sent me off on another path. And I, I don't think I've ever learned so much as after having written the book, because it opened my eyes to so many challenges and uh, possibilities. And I think you need to be, uh, if you're going to succeed as a top performing salesperson, you have to spend a fair amount of time in introspection. You need to look in the ugly mirror and uh, recognize what you need to do more of, what you need to do less of, what you need to fix, what you need to change, what you need to stop doing, start doing. And so often we uh, get comfortable. And I think one of the best lessons that I ever learned was you should never feel content with your performance in any interaction with the prospect. Um, so uh, one of the things that I've definitely gotten into the habit of and uh, with all of the people who report to me, a debriefing is critically important. And yep. I'm really curious about your debriefing process, both verbal and written. Yeah. The written is, is dangerous in a large corporation because when you put something down, you know, maybe that's becoming litigious or something you're going to forward to someone's manager. So I'm not a big fan of the the written feedback unless it's you know, absolutely necessary, but I've gotten out of meetings and, you know, maybe the team is like, oh, that was great. You know, I'm really onto something. And I'd like pick a pick, you know, different parts of it that, or, or we'll say, okay, well, you know, what could we have done differently or better? And without exception, there's always something that we could have done differently and better, no matter how well the meeting went, no matter how great we all thought we did. Uh, and so we tr I try to take that opportunity to to debrief the team, say like, you know, what we did well, what we didn't do well. And I think that that honest dialogue really helps everybody improve, including, you know, myself, obviously, right? Like I, I want to make sure that, you know, I'm constantly improving in, in, in how, you know, how I'm directing the team. And so that's really how, that's how I approach it. And I approach it as I'm not the evaluator, right? It's the entire team is evaluating. So you know, I'll go around and say, well, you know, what did you think? What did you think? You know, what could I have done differently? And usually I focus the, the lens on myself. What could I have done differently in the meeting? And so that, I find that that's very effective. Interesting. I, I'm not worked in a large corporation throughout my career, but what I've always found working with my clients uh, who do sell into those sorts of organizations is having a written debrief is very powerful because off the back of the written debrief, we then do a verbal debrief. So you give the written debrief to somebody else and have them take you through the debriefing. Um, so, uh, oh, oh, so at, I, oh, we do that too. Oh yeah, I do that too. Uh, I, I, I thought, 
I thought you were talking about something a little bit different. I thought you were talking about delivering feedback and improving improving the team's performance, right? I thought you were talking about actual like performance feedback um, uh, um, versus. Okay. A, Maybe that's just more to do with uh, American litigious society than British. I don't know. I think giving people direct performance feedback is healthy, but you have to set it up with the right expectations. And it's part of our culture. When I'm building sales teams, I expect them to give me the unvarnished truth about how I perform. And I will do the same to them because the the idea is that we raise our our game. And so I want to know whether we got uh, the information we expected, did we? What did we learn? What uh, red flags were raised? What issues were not covered? What gaps were uh, identified? What expectations do we have in terms of next steps? Who does what by when? How did each of us perform? Particularly now, we're, we're pretty much all selling virtually. Having tools like Refract, Chorus, Gong is incredibly potent as a a personal improvement tool because you can run the analytics and you can see where the talk time balance was and uh, the type of questions when the competition or money was raised and all of this kind of stuff. And I, I personally, I revel in that kind of feedback because it means that every single interaction is a learning opportunity. And I think one of the challenges is it is such a sophisticated role and if we're not taking every advantage to learn, then it, it will just keep repeating mistakes. I get your point. I'm being uh, slightly glib. Okay, so tell me this. You've managed to secure the sale, the initial sale. How do you establish a cadence of regular contact with the different users, influencers, and particularly I'm really interested in how you choreograph the relationship with procurement, because I think so many people in sales have a view of procurement, and I'm guilty of this as well, that procurement are the enemy. They're the deal prevention officers. But actually, if you ally yourself with the right procurement, you will get a piece of every slice of pie that goes out there, and you can be their strategic partner instead of a bit player. So I'd love to uh, get your thoughts on that. The power of procurement is on the rise to an extent that's almost absurd, at least from what I've seen in the past five years in particular, where procurement can overturn an internal decision based on certain guidelines where they're you know, safeguarding their, or they feel they're safeguarding the, the company's interests. And, and so you can get into situations where they can delay. They can cause or trigger an RFP or go around an executive that you're working with and say, you know what, we really need to, you know, let's hold up on this. Like we got to do it. We got to go to go to market with an RFP. And next thing you know, the deal that you're working on, which was about to close, could be six months or a year out. So, I mean, that's my experience with, with procurement in terms of uh, aligning yourself with them. I think it's very important to do that, to understand like, what is it that they're, they're trying to achieve? What, what metrics, what are the metrics that are, that are driving them? I found that also sometimes they won't, they won't be very transparent about that, but I do agree that I think of it as like a a dual approach. 
you want to develop a good relationship with procurement because that you know they they are very powerful. They are in a lot of respects the gatekeepers to getting the deal done. I try to partner with them, but you also have to have that uh, executive relationship Absolutely. because sometimes there might be something that is just maybe they're either maybe they don't understand the nuance of what you're selling. Right, there could be something that 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 they have blocked up, where they're asking for something that's unreasonable. Like they might be like, "Oh, I want unlimited server calls," right? And that's like, that's like that. Like that. That's how our. It's like that might be how your technology is priced. Like that's not possible to give unlimited server calls. Like, well, this other company gave us unlimited this or unlimited that, and it's like it's something that's totally different. So, I think having that having that balance of of a, a, a client sponsor and a good relationship with procurement is really important. And then, so that's something I haven't, I haven't encountered myself, but the idea of having a, a relationship with procurement and then procurement brings you into things, that would be wonderful. So that's not something that, that I've developed myself. That's usually come more from my client relationships and, and understanding their, their problems. Check out a lady called Jill Robbins and she runs a company called Business Fierce and she helps salespeople 25 years as a professional procurement officer, leading procurement for multi-billion dollar organizations. And what people don't really recognize, and you, you kind of alluded to it, that over the last five years, procurement's power has increased manifold. So we've got to deal with the reality of the way things are. As a salesperson, I would prefer not to have to deal with them. But I now recognize that they are in that position of power. And often they are the CFO's best weapon to get that 30% because they can go out to their supply chain and they can say, we need to make these savings. And they can find that 30%. And particularly now as we're moving into another depression, it's not just a recession. If you're looking ahead at the economic indicators, there is a very strong probability, plus COVID on top, that we're heading for five years of some of the toughest economic activity we've ever experienced in our lives. So procurement will continue to get stronger hold on the entire purchasing process. So it's a reality. And if, you, if we bury our heads in the sand as professional salespeople, we're going to come unstuck because procurement may let through the odd deal, but actually procurement also has the gate to the, hen, uh, the keys to the hen house. And if you align yourselves with what they are trying to achieve and you start to recognize that in a good procurement department, now I am talking about the exception rather than the rule, but a great procurement team is able to have that long-range visibility because all the different departments and areas of the business are lobbing their problems over the fence saying, we need a fix, we need a fix. And procurement should have that long-range visibility of what all these different moving parts look like and where the problems are. And if you understand how the different moving parts in an enterprise start to fall apart or rattle or uh, need to be oiled, then you can work with procurement and say, you know, it may be that we're not quite right at the moment. However, if you see this pattern of events happening, across your enterprise, that would be a good time to bring us in. And what we need to understand as well is, yeah, if you're Google or IBM, then chances are you have a one-stop shop solution, but the rest of us don't. 
we are just one tiny cog in a machine that forms a component of their IT strategy or their manufacturing strategy or their supply chain. And we need to be able to ally ourselves with procurement to be able to see where we fit. How can we help them achieve their goals? At the same time, we need to have that executive sponsorship so we understand what are the key outcomes that the board has as part of their strategy that they want to execute on. And if you can find a way of aligning the two, then all of a sudden you have massive momentum behind you and next to no resistance. Because without with, with the executive sponsors and procurement on your side, who the hell is going to stand up to you? You mentioned um, one thing that is something I should definitely apply, which is I've heard this in conversations, which is that notion of, of long-range visibility. And on occasion, you know, I've, I've met with a procurement person that, that does seem to have a more holistic view of the different cycles and initiatives than even some of the clients that I've worked with that are pretty senior, which I found to be shocking. So that's certainly something that I think at least I, you know, I and probably you know, a lot of other people should focus a bit more on. I think that the also with, uh, with procurement, it's, it is very much a double-edged, a double-edged sword. And managing that relationship very carefully is of paramount importance, of course. So it's a constant stream of negotiations. It's one little agreement after another. And you're not just going in, you're not present, just presenting your product and they're going to whack out their credit card or their checkbook. This is a constant steady stream of little negotiation after little agreement after little agreement. And we've got to get really smart about this because I think too few salespeople are great at that whole process of contracting with the buyer, uh, each buyer as they go along, making sure that they're getting those little agreements so that you don't have that bigger uh, negotiation at the end or you, and you don't have to try yeah. and get a big agreement at the end. If you can prevent that from being necessary by making sure that you're lining up all of your uh, sponsors, you've identified exactly what each of them needs to support you to go through to the next stage and eventually to support the uh, final purchase. Um, that is one of the key areas that I would urge anybody uh, listening to this episode uh, to really pay close attention to. Uh, understand that it's um, uh, you, you end up in a big negotiation at the end if you haven't got hundreds of little agreements along the way. Your thoughts? Yeah, I can't. I can't agree more. I mean, that is that's you know really really important. And I think on top of that, we have to tie whatever that whatever we're working towards to to a key problem, a key business issue that we're looking to solve, and have some type of simple articulation with a simple number behind it. That were so this is this is your problem. It's worth you know X millions of dollars to you. Here's what the solution does. It's you know this amount on the surface, and then we can start to dig in. But once you have that that foundational level agreement at the top around the simple articulation of what it is you're trying to solve, and what that over you know that relative overarching budget is that's going to be allocated, that's absolutely critical. And then you you kind of go down through the different levels and test the assumptions as you go for each of the you know piece parts of the solution. And so yes, for sure. I mean, you, you, and you don't want to have surprises you know, as you go through that process. so uh, And to, bi to build yeah. on that, triangulate the answers that you get 
So keep asking the same question of multiple people to make sure that you're getting consistency and look for the discrepancies and gaps in the answers because that will often tell you where not only the opportunity is, but also where you're going to get pushback or there are threats to advancing the same. Dave, this has been really fascinating and I hope that we can do this again because I think this is a subject that merits a significant deep dive. Tell me this, what, what are you struggling with at the moment? What are you wrestling with? Well, you know, right now I'm starting off in a, a new year. I have some new customers I'm working with. So I'm struggling with balancing, like, how do I, how do I maximize my time, the time of my team to solving a couple really, really big problems that we have among a couple of our customers while still making sure we're, we're not getting sidetracked and building across the rest of the base. So that's what I'm wrestling with right now and good problems to have for sure. But that's uh, every year it's, it's something new. So that's, that's my current uh, situation. Excellent. So tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Dave age 23 about something that you know he would probably ignore the advice over, but would have been valuable. What, what one bit of advice would you give him? You know, I would just say that the, the hard work uh, will pay off. So just keep at it. <laughs> okay. I'm a big fan of being intelligently lazy. So you you pick your times. To work. Um, so we, my, my, my 23-year-old would be getting different advice. I think you do have to work hard. But um, yeah, pick the times. And the, the time to work hard is not in front of the customer. That's when That's right. hard work should come to fruition. Okay. Tell me this, what, what are you reading, what, watching, listening to at the moment that you would recommend other people pay heed to? So right now, um, you know, I've, I'm really just been focused on my own book, right? But I have downloaded a whole series of books that I'm looking forward to reading. One of them is called The Seventh Sense, which is about networking uh, or the, the effect of networks. And I've started to look at that. I want to read a bit more about, about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Trying to you know understand like you know what exactly is, is happening there is obviously transformative and I think what kept me from learning about it before is the the I just found when I heard blockchain it just sounds like it's not it's not very very well branded right so like, <laughs> I, just, I was like blockchain like that's the most boring thing I ever heard so you know I'm trying to get excited about it and, and understand it those are a few of the things that that I'm reading about and I always try to read about you know different historical biographies or you know business books to keep me sharp. Excellent. So how can people get hold of you? I think LinkedIn is the best way. Just you know, reach out to me. If, uh, if you search for David Perry and you type in Adobe and Google, and I'm assuming I'll, you know, I'll come right up and just send me a message over LinkedIn. Excellent. David Perry, thank you. Thank you as well. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think you'd be a good guest, then please do get in touch. You can email me at marcus at laughs-last.com. Now, if you're the owner or CEO of a tech company and your goal is to grow your business, achieve real sustainable hypergrowth with a highly engaged and highly productive team and get clients who stick with you year after year after year, then get in touch and let's schedule time for a brief conversation. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.